0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News.
1: Hey, everybody. It's Leslie. I work with Pete at Automotive News. I am the editor of Shift, the magazine.
0: Big news in the last week or so, as many of you may have seen, uh, the self-driving delivery company Neuro received the first-ever exemption from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to put automated vehicles on the road. That don't conform to federal motor vehicle safety standards. Joining us to talk about that is Neuro's chief legal and policy officer, David Estrada. He will be here in a few minutes. But Leslie, this is just the uh, one example of a lot of lot of news that's come in the last week or so in the automated vehicle front. You know, I, I've kind of lost track on the number of autopilot related investigations that the, the NTSB has now done. But here is just like. You know, compiling more uh, cases in which autopilot uh, likely played a role in, in, in a crash. Uh, and one of these cases is very similar to the first one that we saw years ago in, in Williston, Florida, where there's a, a truck going across the, you know, across a, a highway and uh, autopilot is not designed to, to sense that. Uh, so I think that this overall just means there's mounting pressure for the federal government to to do something to kind of prevent these ap- accidents from continuing to happen. And speaking of the federal government, there were other developments last week.
1: Yeah, that includes a, a congressional hearing where you have some trade groups who uh, came in and they talked about the need to finally get some kind of legislation on autonomous vehicles, you know, to kind of, um, you know, bring together some of these safeguards and things like that, because right now we just have voluntary standards and there have been some exemptions, including one we're going to talk about a little later.
0: That's right. And, you know, in the hearing, it was interesting. Uh, Gary Shapiro from the Consumer Technology Association was one of the panelists who was testifying. And he was really warning that China was about to to lap the U.S. on self-driving technology. It really echoed back to the the shift podcast we did with him a few short weeks ago. And I felt like perhaps we got a little sneak peek at, at the remarks that that he gave Congress uh, yesterday.
1: Yeah, he's saying that the lack of a national goal on on autonomous technology is actually hindering the U.S. and making it less competitive. So I think that if you haven't heard that uh, testimony, then maybe check out C-SPAN or wherever you might be able to find a rebroadcast, and um, please check it out. Lots of
0: good content on C-SPAN. I won't disagree.
1: Uh, you can find the Gary Shapiro
0: podcast in our archives but first stick around right now after the break we will be back with uh, David Estrada from Nero
2: Hi again I'm Jason Stein publisher of Automotive News I'd like to personally invite you to attend the all new Automotive News World Congress What's new Well let's start with the date and the venue This year the World Congress will take place March 24th and 25th in the former Cobo Hall now the TCF Center in the heart of downtown Detroit. What's more, the Congress is the centerpiece of our new Innovation Week, featuring a Shift Mobility event, plus the Automotive News Pace Awards, which honors innovation among automotive suppliers. And don't forget that one thing remains the same. The World Congress is your opportunity to hear directly from the most influential industry leaders and disruptors of the day. Attend the Congress and hear from Hyundai's Jose Munoz, Carvana CEO Ernie Garcia, Rivian founder RJ Scaringe and many more. There will be fireside chats about automotive's big issues and all-star networking opportunities with prominent executives from across the industry. So be there when we set the agenda for 2020. Register today for the Automotive News World Congress, and I'll see you in Detroit.
0: Now joining us on the podcast is David Estrada, Chief Legal and Policy Officer at Neuro. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, obviously, some big news for Neuro last week with the uh, exemption request approved by the U.S. Department of Transportation. What makes this a milestone for Neuro and and the broader industry?
3: If we look at the timeline of autonomous vehicles, we started to talk about it publicly. I think around 2011 or 2012, when Google was the first onto the scene with the idea of self-driving cars and a project called Chauffeur, which I and others in the industry worked on at the time. I was the first lawyer for the for the fledgling outfit called Google X, which was working on self-driving cars. And so if you look at the time frame of about seven to eight years that we've been discussing this, NHTSA has been very interested the entire time and has done some analysis and and come out with some forward-looking statements and principles. But this is the first time in the history of the industry that the federal government has actually approved, given a regulatory approval for any self-driving car. And that's a huge milestone for us and for the industry.
0: Kind of delineate for us, how have you been able to test without an exemption uh, and what You know, just kind of separate what does this mean now? How have you been able to conduct pilot programs and testing without this? And now, what does this do?
3: We've been able to test with two vehicles. Like most companies in the industry, we use a a standard automobile. We use a Prius that we outfit with our autonomous technology. So it has all of the sensors and it has the full computing. technology stack on the vehicle. And we test with a driver in the car and and a safety crew in the car. But in addition, we created an earlier version of our bot called the R1 as a low-speed vehicle. And we've been able to operate that on the roads previously. We actually used it in commercial service for quite some time in Arizona delivering groceries with our partner Kroger. What's different now is that that vehicle was put on the roads under the LSV classification before one particular rule went into effect. That rule was that vehicles must have a backup camera. And when the vehicles have the backup camera, when they start to move from a reverse to a forward uh, drive, the backup camera display screen needs to be turned off so that it doesn't distract the driver. That's a relatively new rule and was actually put into effect after our R1 vehicle was on the road. So as we were developing our R2 vehicle, we we came to a question, well, should we go ahead and look for a way to certify compliance with this requirement, which we actually did with a couple of other things on the R1, including near side mirrors and a windshield? We For the R1, we decided to just go ahead and comply, even though those two pieces of equipment don't add to safety in the vehicle should we do that or should we apply for an exemption and we decided to apply for an exemption and and look to NHTSA to actually set a regulatory framework that says there are certain safety requirements for vehicles that are only relevant to keeping a driver safe and keeping passengers safe and we included the backup camera the side mirrors and the windshield As examples where we put two of these three things on a vehicle already, they don't add to safety and they might detract from safety. So for our next vehicle, let's seek an
1: exemption. Okay, so um, David, so now you have this exemption, what happens now? So um, what does the uh, regulatory certainty give the company, you know, at this point, you've covered all your bases. So what do you do with this now?
3: Under this exemption, we, for a two-year period, can operate 5,000 vehicles, so 2,500 vehicles per year. There are some conditions on the exemption which um, include data sharing. What we're going to do is we're going to begin testing on public roads under this exemption within weeks. And then we'll actually begin doing commercial deliveries with some of our partners in, in the city of Houston. And over the course of this year, we will expand the service to be a a broad scale commercial service in Houston, where what we're moving toward is we have a vehicle that is now robust enough to engage in commercial service. Now, let's start to focus on how do we deliver a really good product for consumers that adds value to consumers?
1: You mentioned that this is a two year exemption. So. First of all, why only two years, and what happens after that two-year period is expired?
3: After that two-year period, either one would need to certify a new vehicle, which we could we could certify a new vehicle, or certify this vehicle. Uh, as I said, we had chosen to seek the exemption because we thought it was important to work with NHTSA to identify things that really shouldn't apply to autonomous vehicles that are only relevant to keeping a driver and passenger safe. And in this vehicle, there are no drivers. There's no driver and there's no passengers. So we could self-certify this vehicle and find ways to comply with these requirements, uh, or we can seek a new exemption, or we can put an entirely new vehicle on the road.
0: David, you mentioned that work with NHTSA. Can you just you know, give us some perspective on, on how this played out behind the scenes? If I remember correctly, Neuro filed for the exemption in October of 18, And here we are in, in what, February of 2020, uh, is that kind of 16 month period is, is that really slow for things that seem obvious on their face? Is that really fast as far as how the, the government moves? How did, you know, what were those conversations like and how frequent were they?
3: It's really interesting. I think you asked two questions and the answer to both of them is yes, (laughs) yes. It, it is slow for something that seems obvious on its face, because I think the Secretary Chow issued a tweet that I think resonated with all of us. She put it quite simply. She said, for a vehicle that has no passengers and no driver, it doesn't make sense to require mirrors in a windshield. And I think everybody would come to that conclusion quite instantly. And then the question is, what, uh, what should be the time frame? for turning that logical assessment into an actual ruling by the federal government. And the process the process actually just involves some steps that in some cases can't be done quite so quick quickly. So when you apply for an exemption, you do have to satisfy quite a burden that the vehicle itself if you if the exemption is granted, the vehicle will be just as safe as a different vehicle that would comply with all of the FMVSS requirements. So when we submitted our application, that was the burden we were seeking to to meet. Now, in addition to the application, then there is a mandatory public comment period where every every individual citizen and other governmental entities and groups have the right to comment on this and and raise issues and concerns or support. NHTSA actually has an obligation to respond to all of those comments. So that's quite a lengthy process that even if you start out with something that we all agree is is just basic logic, does take some time. So in the grand scheme of things, around a year and a half to get this done is fairly reasonable given the process at play.
0: You know, you mentioned earlier that there's certain conditions that neuro has to fulfill to you know receive and keep the exemption. And they involve data sharing, and that's always a, you know, a sensitive topic in the autonomous vehicle industry. With the industry generally seeking to, you know, share as little as possible. So, can you can you add some insight on what exactly the NHTSA and the DOT wants to to see as far as as data goes, and uh, what does this ongoing relationship look like for for Neuro and, and NHTSA?
3: It starts with. This is an important moment for NHTSA, and we're actually really glad to be participating in it. The reason is that up until now, NHTSA has not got significant data from any of the AV companies, and they need data in order to engage in rulemaking. Because part of the answer to what comes next for us is, we need to move beyond an exemption. And NHTSA has actually already announced a rulemaking for what they're calling a passengerless class vehicle which would probably be more, uh, it might migrate over to say a, a zero occupant or an occupantless vehicle because there's no driver or passengers. To be able to conduct that ruling, NHTSA needs data and they need to conduct research. And so this actually allows them to, for the first time, to get some of that data about how one of the AVs out in the field is performing. And so we're actually, we're actually really enthusiastic about providing them the data that can be useful in advancing this rulemaking that's going to be good for us as a company and good for the industry. And at the same time, we'll be working with NHTSA to make sure that the data that we classify as confidential business information is protected because it can be quite sensitive.
1: David, is it surprising to you that the U.S. DLT elected to grant its first exemption in the AV realm to a delivery-focused company, let's say, as opposed to an AV company that carries human passengers?
3: This is another really interesting one where I think if you take a step back and think about when all of us get into a car, what what is the point? And what is the point of AVs? And it takes me back to a time when, when I was at Google, and we put out the, the first video of a passenger taking a ride in one of these early self-driving cars. And that that passenger's name was Steve Mann, a gentleman we worked with. And it shows a journey conducting errands. Steve Steve actually was visually impaired, and he had to conduct some errands. And the question was, how was he going to do that? Well, he was going to get into a car, and the car took him to get some food at Taco Bell and pick up some dry cleaning. And... And it was really interesting to think through, well, this is what we envision as the purpose for a self-driving car, taking someone to conduct errands. And that's really so much of what we do when we get in our cars. There are about 400 billion trips we take per year in our cars to run errands. It's a staggering number. And it's about 40% of what we do in our cars. So the question is, Is that really how we should be using our time or would it be safer for everyone, including ourselves, if instead of hopping in the car and racing across town to run errands, we have an autonomous vehicle do much of that for us? Because the safest thing for you to do to avoid any road hazard is don't get on the road. So it's an entirely new way of looking at an autonomous vehicle. Most of the others are looking at how can we protect people? when they're traveling across town. Autonomous vehicles, when, when most companies discuss it, they talk about, this is gonna keep people safer because autonomous technology actually drives better than we humans do. Well, that's true, but it's even more safe not to get in the car in the first place. So that wins back to your answer of, well, why would, why would NHTSA grant its first exemption for a car that drives goods around town instead of people around town? because you've dramatically reduced the risk by taking people out of the car. So our vehicle, if it runs into trouble, our vehicle can slam on the brakes or it can self-sacrifice and turn out of the way of what might otherwise be a situation that's harmful for others on the road. So if there's a pedestrian on the road or if there's a bicyclist on the road, We prioritize making sure that the pedestrians and bicyclists are safe, and we don't have to worry about what's inside the car. And so we think that was part of the consideration that NHTSA gave to this.
1: Going back to the uh, time you mentioned the uh, public comment period um, for NHTSA, what were some of the takeaways that you got from that particular uh, period? What were some of the learnings, and has that influenced your um, technology plans in any way?
3: One of the things that NITS has been thinking about for quite some time is how do we validate the safety of the autonomous vehicle stack itself? And so what we're talking about there is they call it an ADS, an automated driving system. What that comprises is a lot of sensors, which include cameras and radar and sonar. Some use heat sensors and LIDARs. And then computing technology, what do you do with that information when you get it? There's perception, there's how does the autonomous stack see the world? There's prediction, when it does see the world, the autonomous stack determines, hey, there's something coming at me, what is that thing going to do? And then there's planning, there's the vehicle has to decide, now that I've perceived the world, now that I've predicted what this thing coming at me is going to do, how do I, the vehicle, react? So NHTSA has yet to come up with a, a clear understanding of how how should it regulate all of that. I think most in the industry conclude that we should have national instead of a patchwork of, of state-by-state regulations on this. And and this is the direction NHTSA is going to be moving. And yet they haven't had the data yet, and they've been wanting to – Engage more closely with industry to start getting the data. So by granting this exemption, they start to get some of that
0: data. And David, with with you guys being out front on this, getting that data, and, and kind of seeing how NHTSA has handled this case, uh, you know, if if you were at another AV focused company right now, uh, is this kind of like the path forward that that people are going to say, okay, this is how this is how is approaching it. Uh, is there is there new insight from to be gleaned uh, from from the way that they responded to your exemption request, uh, as far as how they'll respond broadly to to others?
3: I think the insight to be gained is they they do appreciate the value that autonomous vehicles are going to bring to society, and they do want to help with innovation. So so that was a really important signal coming from NHTSA, and we're excited to work with them. At the same time, they will make sure to emphasize that safety is the most important criteria from their perspective. And so the question is, how can we as the AV industry help them in this goal of theirs to advance innovation and safety at the same time? And the best way we can help them is to give them the data that they need and proposals for how they should use that data to determine what's the best way to come up with an appropriate set of standards for the operation of autonomous vehicles.
0: You've mentioned safety a few times, and I want to—I kind of want to drill down on the on the vehicle itself, the R two here, for a minute or two. Uh, conceptually, I see a lot of delivery companies that are talking about making making robots that drive on the sidewalk, and obviously, the R two is built for the road. Uh, you know, philosophically, how did Neuro arrive at the decision that that's the direction it wanted to go versus versus these others that are are looking more at the sidewalk?
3: It starts with looking at what is the what is the current uses of of both of those different parts of the public right of way, and how is the public right of way currently governed? So streets are part of the public right of way and so are sidewalks. the The intention of cities managing sidewalks and building sidewalks in the first place has always been we need a place for people to walk and the intention of the streets is we need a place for vehicles to drive and so if we start with that basic premise we thought it made a lot more sense to use the public right-of-way that was intended for vehicles to drive as opposed to relying on the public right-of-way that is intended for people to walk I, i think if if we start to move into the experiences that I've had, one of my previous jobs was at the company that founded the electric scooter sharing movement, BIRD. And what we saw was that this, by, by putting out scooters for people to rent, it really solved an important problem and it created a lot of new questions. The important, pro- the important solution was that this was a really convenient way for people to move around short distances in towns and, and to say to do you know, carbon reduction, et cetera. But, but it also raised the issue of people are riding these on sidewalks and it's upsetting a lot of pedestrians. This issue has been raised about the sidewalk robots and is yes, a few of them have been tolerated, but can they reach the level of scale necessary to conduct a business And if they reach that level of scale, how are pedestrians going to feel about that?
1: David, I'm curious about why the decision to design a vehicle from scratch, say, instead of, say, adapting an existing vehicle such as a minivan. So what are the advantages of having your very own purpose-built design?
3: We started with the customer. And we also see that in this industry, There's a lot of talk about technology, and most of the discussion I see is very company-focused. How are we developing technology, and what do we think is so great about this technology? And I think there isn't quite enough discussion about, yeah, but what's it going to do for the customer, and how are we going to help people's lives? And that's something we're really focusing on here at Neuro with a Purpose Built Vehicle, is we want to make sure that we're producing a really valuable experience for customers, And we think the best way to do that is with a vehicle purpose-built for delivery. So when you look at what this vehicle is, it's something that will produce a really good customer service at the curb. And so, for example, if I were to order groceries to be delivered from one of our partners, Croker, and our vehicle shows up with the groceries, you will get a text telling you that the vehicle is on its way and now it has arrived and you'll get a code in one of those texts telling you the code to punch in in the touch screen well that means we need to put a touch screen in and there's information to be conveyed back and forth in the touch screen so you need to have something like that customized for interaction because if a human is not there there needs to be a, a very seamless interaction with the vehicle then the doors will open up and when the doors open up they should Allow you to very easily find your products amongst others, um, so that things have to be arranged in, in a very good way. We also thought about, for example, with one of our partners, Domino's. What if you order a pizza, but you didn't think about ordering some of the snacks or drinks that you wanted to that you might want with that? Well, what if one of the compartments has is a heating compartment, and it's keeping your pizza warm? Again, purpose built to keep your food warm. And what if the other compartment is cooled and it has drinks that you can select? And you didn't even order the drinks, but we have a mechanism so that you can take some of the drinks and it will charge you for what you take. So that's a, that's a very customized experience that we want to deliver to, to create something that really, really works for the expectations of providing customer delight.
1: Including impulse buys, I guess, Um, and maybe a little (laughs) on-the-spot upselling there. I think that's pretty brilliant. Now, um, one thing I'm wondering about is um, what is the ideal physical environment for this vehicle? I'm I'm trying to visualize it on some of the busy streets of Detroit, for example. Are we talking city? Are we talking rural campus environments? Can you go a little bit into that?
0: Yeah,
3: starting in Houston... um I'll tell you why we chose Houston was because there's a, a good variety, and we're going to learn where the service work, works best. H- Houston is America's third most populous town, if if I'm still keeping up with my figures. And it really has quite a lot of variety in terms of what the topography is like, what the streets are like. Um, how much can we learn uh, about our, our vehicle's ability to handle different environments? And how dense are some neighborhoods and how spread out are other neighborhoods? And in the more dense neighborhoods, how well can we park the vehicle on a crowded street? Um, whereas in other neighborhoods, that's clearly not an issue. So we chose a city that we can really learn how well can we service various different types of neighborhoods and and then we'll take it from there. It's also important that it comes back to why we designed the vehicle uh, the way we did. One of the things we thought through was the vehicle should be as narrow as reasonably possible. Because in some instances, you may have to park next to another car that's parked already at the curb. And it's really important if you're going to be there for a short amount of time that other road users can can pass by the vehicle. We see that this is a this is a difficulty when large delivery vans pull up into a crowded neighborhood. And if I'm parked behind a very large delivery van, it, it blocks traffic and stops everything from moving.
0: What what's the addressable market for, for delivery services like the one that you are providing?
3: Well the addressable market is is gigantic. And so let's think about it for a second. Because there's so many things that we've only touched on publicly. There's this notion about what about the change in commerce entirely, and the let's say the demise of local commerce for for over ten years or twenty years. I guess I'm getting pretty old. Amazon has been around since the early internet days, and many of us order order much of our goods remotely from from a service like Amazon. And and when we do that, we we start to um, do more and more of our shopping remotely on one website, and we, we stopped doing a lot of local shopping. Well, what has happened? A lot of local businesses have gone out of business and, and are struggling. What's What we're really excited about is the idea that we can help revive local commerce. If you imagine that there are many stores where I can shop locally for most of the things that I need, and yet I don't because I probably don't want to run a lot of errands. Well, we have solved that problem for you. You don't have to run a lot of errands. So what if you could do most of your shopping from local stores and have those goods delivered to you on demand? We think it satisfies your need to have most of the things you want delivered to you if you don't want to run errands. And it's really exciting about how it could revive local commerce. There's a second thing that that I think about If you think about using a a service like say, eBay or Craigslist, what if, for example, you could trade in used goods in a a really seamless way that was convenient to you? How might that change how how much those services thrive? So if I, for instance, I want to buy a used set of, of golf clubs or a used bike, Well, sometimes I don't want to travel across town and, um, and, and go and engage in that kind of an interaction to, to look for a used bike. But if, if a used bike or set of golf clubs can be put inside of a vehicle and brought to me and I can see, is this something I want or don't want, then that could be very powerful.
0: Very interesting. I hadn't thought about that used goods angle, uh, before, but, uh, that'll be, that'll be very interesting to follow. Um,
3: I am curious. Now, what we may need to do is put a – now, to do that, of course, we may need to put a, a bike rack on our vehicle. So we'll have to see if that <laughs> works out.
0: I want to see the first picture of the uh, R2 with a bike rack on it. That'll that'll tell exactly. us – that'll be a good hint you're on, on the right road with uh, with this used goods <laughs> path. Yep. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, in a matter of weeks, you'll have the R2s deployed, at least some of them. Uh, and you have this exemption for up to 5000 over the next two years. Uh, give us give us a you know ballpark figure. Out how quickly will you scale up how many vehicles, uh, how many R2s will be on the road by, say, the end of this calendar year?
3: We're going to look to match demand as much as we can. So we're going to scale pretty carefully and decide how well are we doing in meeting demand and, and how well are we doing in satisfying the requirements of customers. So at this point, if we don't know the number of vehicles we're going to see how good are we at building this service. The thing to come back to is we, just like others, have focused so much on building our technology that providing the customer service is new. And much of the interaction with our customers so far has been with our Prius vehicles. And as we roll out the bot vehicles, there's going to be a lot to learn as we scale. And so it's going to take us some time, and we'll have to see how many vehicles we scale up to over the course of the year.
1: David, what about your relationship with Roush? Can you tell us a little bit, which is, of course, um, has a big operation here in the Detroit area. Can you tell us the role that Roush played in the development of the R2?
3: Yes, we were very excited to to work with Roush to develop the R2. And we continue to continue to have that manufacturing agreement in place. Roush has, with us, developed the, the vehicle from the ground up and continues to continues to make new ones for us. And we're excited to be working with an American manufacturing company to get this done.
1: Can you tell us where the name R2 and also R1, um, where they come from? People are going to assume that there is a Star Wars connection there. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your naming convention?
3: Yes. They come from our extreme lack of creativity. (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to, as opposed to Um, R2-D2. I, it is interesting because, um, yeah, R2 gets pretty close. But first we came up with the incredibly creative Robot 1, or R1, and now we're on Robot 2. Um, and so the good news is we've hired our first um, our first branding hire recently. And so we'll go through a really fun naming exercise soon, I think.
0: Uh, David, you had mentioned earlier that uh, your first job in this arena was at Google X, and you have – you have spent previous time at Bird as well. Uh, how does your experience at, at those two places, and, and kind of Curious Bird in particular, uh, how does that kind of play into how you approach a uh, delivery vehicle space?
3: Well, I think about there's actually been quite a um, – I've had quite a journey through the transportation space. I, I have to admit I didn't plan on entering the space. It, it so happened I had long been involved in – the publishing side or the user the user content side of the internet for quite a while. I worked at Yahoo and then YouTube. And, and it really was pure happenstance that I started working on the transportation space when I went to Google X. But I really found that this was something I loved solving, the, the idea that essentially the earth is getting more crowded and cities are incredibly crowded with vehicle congestion. And now we have a climate crisis. And the climate crisis is something I've thought a lot about yeah, in, in terms of issues I care about. It's the number one issue I really care about because it's, um, it's just so devastating what's happening. And so when, when I think about that and think about it being combined with the work I've done, that is something that really motivated me to work for Bird. Bird created controversy, obviously, because it, it was disrupting the way transportation was happening in cities and disrupted sidewalks, and that really upset a lot of people. But when you think about trade-offs and the need to reduce our carbon footprint, I thought, you know, this is a trade-off that needs to be made. And that's, that's how I think about what we're doing with our vehicle as well. This is an all-electric vehicle, and it's going to replace mostly uh, combustion engine vehicle trips because most of the vehicles out there in the world are combustion engine. And then it's a very small vehicle and takes up a lot less space and can help with the congestion issue in cities. And to the extent that, that we move forward in batching trips and reducing vehicle miles traveled, I'm really excited about the ability to address these these issues of just getting f- having fewer cars on the road at one time and having most of the trips turn into carbon-free trips
0: is that you know, you mentioned these mega trends about cities getting more crowded and obviously uh, global warming taking place uh, safety seems to be another key one that you're addressing and you know you, you had touched on this earlier and I kind of want to hammer it home you know exactly how and maybe it's the smaller form factor how is is neuro safer than than other cars on the road because I know that was a big part of the e- exemption uh, process as well as uh, a showing that you're not less safe, and and you know there's also this potential that a neuro vehicle can enhance safety.
3: Well, when you when you start with the basics, weight or mass and speed are the combined factors that are most important to how much uh, damage is going to be done upon impact. If you look at the neuro vehicle, it is approximately two thousand pounds which compares to a minivan that's usually around 6,000 pounds. And when our 2,000-pound vehicle goes 25 miles per hour, the amount of damage that can be inflicted if there's a if there's an impact is dramatically less than a 6,000-pound vehicle traveling at 30 miles per hour. So you start with a vehicle that is just inherently safer in its weight and the speed it's traveling. Second, if you look at how it interacts with its environment. It's a it's a vehicle that other road users can move around more easily because it's narrower and smaller. And its doors open up instead of out. So you imagine when those doors open up they don't fling out. There's you're not going to suddenly open up your doors and hit a bicyclist or hit a pedestrian. And when the doors open up others can move about it more freely as well. And then you look at well when you say this is now a, a vehicle that's only going to carry packages and not people, we talked about how this can prioritize safety for what's outside versus what's inside. Here's an example. If, you're, if, you're, if a vehicle is carrying people and you, you have this sudden stop that needs to occur because suddenly a person has darted out in front of the vehicle, you face that moral problem of, what do I do? There's a person right out in front of the vehicle. I need to slam on the brakes. If I slam on the brakes, I also can do harm to the people inside the vehicle. And you can't come to an instant stop when there are people inside the vehicle, even when they're wearing restraints. But if the vehicle is carrying only packages or some milk and eggs, you can come to an instant stop. And actually, we're working on some technology that would cause there to be no skid. So instant stop. Which is just utterly impossible when people are on board. So we can prioritize making sure that the person in front stays safe.
0: That's very interesting. I don't know if you can elaborate on that technology, but uh, but I was thinking as you were talking, even before you said that, that you must have a, a you know a different vehicle dynamics team than um, than most who are concerned with passengers and you know in those. You know, anything from making sure passengers are comfortable to to executing emergency maneuvers like that. That's a now you're talking a, a whole different arena.
3: Yes, I think I'm going to I'm going to let that be a teaser for our next conversation. <laughs> and we'll tell you exactly what we're working on when we're ready.
1: And David, I just have a very broad question for you and, and more or less about the benefits of being first. I mean, you know, we talked earlier about the uh, the fact that you all have this exemption and you you were the first out of the gate with this. And just how how many other companies or how big do you expect this to get in other in terms of other companies coming into your space and how are you going to deal with the increased competition that's almost inevitable?
3: Well, what I've seen is every time there's a market that is worth addressing, there will be a lot of companies working to address it and to compete. And that results in better products for the consumers. And so I'd expect that if we show that this is a, as huge of an addressable market as we think it is there will be plenty of competition and the first question is what is this market it's a two-sided marketplace that at least the way we're addressing it where you have to be great at two things one managing customer relationships with the with the partner as the customer and managing customer relationships with the with the end purchaser as the customer So what we're working at doing is being great at both of those things. And there's a lot of technology that goes into that two-sided marketplace as well and a lot of operations. So let's imagine that in one city, we have 50 partners and we have a certain number of vehicles. And these vehicles have to work seamlessly with all of those partners and delivering to end customers. It's a really, really complicated operation. That involves having the right people who are excellent at operations and having the right technology, and then also having the right vehicles. And you also just have to be really good at managing partner relationships. That is very complicated. And so we think there's a there are pretty significant barriers to entry because not only do you have to have an AV stack that works, you have to be really great at these other things.
0: All right, David, let's bring this full circle. What's been the public reaction to Nitsa finally responding to Neuro's petition? What sort of what feedback or, or comments have you have you heard?
3: I think the important thing we're going to see is as as Nitsa is as Nitsa put out its public comments on this on this exemption. The response we saw was mostly excitement. I actually watched a bunch of local news say segments, and and it was really interesting to see on the local news segments, people are really excited about the future of technology, and and then also they also want to make sure that it's safe, and that's where we are as well. We're really excited about the future of this service, and we want to we want to make sure that it's safe, and that's what we're focusing on.
0: David, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate the time.
3: All right, thank you guys.
1: And our thanks to David for that fascinating conversation about Noro. And a special shout out to the city of Chicago. We did a bit of a fact check after we talked to David. And um, Chicago, yes, you are still number three. So there are no worries about that.
0: For now, for now. I think uh, Chicago is on the decline and Houston is is growing. So we'll see when those uh, population curves intersect. But that's a topic for another day. Uh, I thought this was a terrific conversation with David and really got me thinking more about that statistic that 40% of all trips are are running errands. Uh, and in this delivery economy, uh, that there's obviously lots of potential.
1: Yeah, it makes you wonder, like, what's going to happen with this whole sort of gig economy, you know, where you have, you know, your Uber Eats and DoorDash and Grubhub, and I guess it's on my mind now, because I'm a little hungry right now. And um, will this enhance those types of services? Or will it... You know, will it create new markets for these companies? So it's interesting to uh, see how this is going to play out.
0: Yeah, lots of lots of questions that we can revisit down the road. But for now, it's it's lunchtime in Detroit. Thank you for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.